Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. We have a scripture text for today, and uh, if you want to look up on the screens, it's there. If you want to look on your iPad, iPhone, uh, or your uh, Bible, it's in Mark 14, beginning in verse 22. And it reads like this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank it, drank from it saying, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Many, he said to them, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it speaks to our lives. I ask, Lord, that you'd come by your spirit now and meet each and every one of us where we're at, that you would speak to us today and bring change, bring life to us in Jesus name. Amen. So for Lent, we're finishing the series that we were on most of last year called The Real Jesus. And we've been looking at the final hours of Jesus' life through his death and through through the resurrection. And I had an interesting question come to mind this last week uh, in regard to this that strikes me as odd. When I look at all the other major religions of the world, uh, I don't see anybody of the major religions, the founders of those major religions, ending their life like Jesus. Now, there's, there's rumored to be a slave girl who may possibly have poisoned Muhammad, and there's the possibility that a follower uh, assassinated one of the other major founders of the religion. But on the whole, all the major founders of religions were kind of at the peak of their popularity, peak of their power and influence, and life was really pretty good. But then we have Jesus. And Jesus ends up going to a cross, ends up being flogged, stripped, beaten, uh, displayed naked in front of the crowds, mocked, spit on, and he dies. And Jesus himself says to us in Luke 14, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And so I was thinking about that and I thought, why would anyone want to follow Jesus and end up like that? I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it? Why is his death so important? And yet all the empirical evidence of history tells us that his death can arguably be stated to be the most historic moment, most historic change in all of human history. I mean, think about it. Billions of people have changed their lives to follow him because of his death. Millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of those people have changed their lives in the face of pressure, knowing that if they made this change, they were subjecting themselves to possible persecution, death, torture, imprisonment. And yet they still made the change to follow him. 
And although we can look at human history and the, the history of Christianity and we can point to uh, great Christian people or, well, not so great Christian people who used Christianity for their own power purposes to, to forward their own agendas and, and somehow through that process uh, led astray even the ignorant faithful to do horrible things in the name of Christianity, the preponderance of evidence around Christianity throughout all of history is that it has been the most liberating force on the face of the planet to liberate those who are oppressed, to liberate women from uh, demeaned, demeaning roles, to liberate, liberate slaves from slavery, to liberate minorities, to liberate children from harsh abuse, to liberate cultures, whole cultures. In fact, if you really honestly look at the history of Christianity, you have to realize that Christianity is the major force behind the force that has caused all people to be educated, not just the elite. It's Christianity that drove that. And if you look throughout history, you can see Christianity caring for the wounded and the sick. Uh, Just one example, in the 1800s and 1900s, all the hospitals that Christianity established all over the United States, all over the world, not just to serve Christians, but to serve all cultures, to care practically for people. It has been a major force for good. But how can that come out of such a horrible death? to the founder of a religion. Some have argued that, well, it's just the martyrdom syndrome, but you can't really argue that. I mean, there's been plenty of martyrs throughout history and nobody has had the kind of influence that Jesus' horrible death has had. Today, if you're here and you're convinced in your faith about following Jesus, then today's message is really going to be about you reconnecting to the deep meaning of it that it has in your life. If you're here today and you are unconvinced in your faith in Jesus, then today's meaning for you is going to be that we're going to take a systematic look at how Jesus' death has meant so much to be life-changing and culture-changing and nation and empire-changing throughout history. Today we're going to look at Christ's death through the First Communion, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. Now, not having grown up in a highly liturgical setting where, uh, you know, maybe Catholic or Episcopal or, or Presbyterian, I wasn't used to the whole thing, and I've always been enamored by this whole celebration of First Communion. I mean, you, you dress up in white dresses if you're a woman, and you, I mean, you just have this amazing stuff and the, all the teaching that goes on around it, and, and it's just a really an amazing, beautiful celebration. But despite the faithfulness, of priests and pastors to try to teach oftentimes that communion is more than just a ritual. It's really about relationships. So often, communion for us has been this almost magic bullet thing that we do to keep our ledger clean of sin. Just something we do to make sure we're okay with God. In spite of all the sincerity of it, we want to look more deeply at it today. So uh, just to give credit where credit's due, there's a lot of people, there's only so many ways to teach on communion. And I looked at several of them and I've decided to follow the structure and use some of the illustrations, not all of them, of a message by Tim Keller. So credit where credit's due. We're going to look today at uh, the importance of communion, the Last Supper. We're going to look at its meaning and then we're going to finish by uh, examining how it transforms our lives, okay? So the importance of the Last Supper. So in this picture that we just read of the Scripture, we see Jesus and the disciples hanging around, reclining on the ground. They're, they're actually celebrating the most holy 
celebration that, that commemorates the most defining moment in all of Israel's history. It's called the Passover. And we see that specifically referenced in verse 12. And the Passover is, a, is celebrating something that happened approximately in 1441 B.C., give or take a couple centuries. But most people think that's about when it happened, when uh, the Israelites were in bondage, uh, slaves to the Egyptians. And God came and did a miraculous deliverance of them from Egypt. And that's what it's celebrating, the final culmination of that miraculous deliverance. It's a meal, and it's a formal meal. It's got very uh, traditional things that go along with it, rituals that go along with it. For example, in a typical Passover meal, there are four cups of wine. And each one of them have specific symbolism that go along with it. The very first cup uh, that they open at the uh, drink at the beginning of the meal is simply uh, just kind of like a blessing on the whole process. The second cup is, uh, I think, really fascinating. Uh, they get up and they, they hold the cup and they talk and recount all ten of the plagues that were a part of their deliverance. And with each one of the plagues, they spill a little bit of the wine, drip a little bit of the wine because they're trying to remember this, this, this great deliverance that God gave them also came at the pain of others. And then there's the third cup, which is what we actually see in our text that Jesus is referring to, and we'll talk about that more in a second. And we actually see the fourth cup not mentioned specifically, but the tradition that goes around it mentioned because when the fourth cup was drunk at the end of the meal, they sang a hymn, and that's what we see in the text today as well. So this third cup. At the third cup, the presider, in this case it would be Jesus at the Last Supper, gets up and holds the cup up and they recount the cost of slaying a lamb and putting the blood on the doorposts to bring forgiveness and redemption to them. And Jesus does something that is really shocking at this point. Jesus doesn't get up and do what the presider is supposed to do. He doesn't recount the lamb slain years ago on Passover. He gets up and says, this is my body. This is my blood. And the disciples, I can imagine, were probably just overwhelmed, disoriented by what Jesus was saying because this was so outside their thinking, and yet that was also very, very clear to them what Jesus was indeed saying. He's saying to them, I am now becoming the most defining moment in all of history. I am the spotless, perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And you see, think about the context that the disciples have been in with Jesus. Jesus has been for weeks talking about the fact that he's going to his death, right? And just a few moments earlier in this interaction, he's exposed Judas the betrayer, and Judas has already left, and they know he's betraying him right now. And there, can you imagine the fear and the anxiety in the room that's going on? And then Jesus is also talking about this death and that he's the lamb on Passover, and they know what happened to the lamb on Passover 1400, over 1,400 years before. They know that Jesus is saying, I'm the one, I'm the one bringing salvation from bondage, from death, from sin. I am the perfect Moses. I am the ultimate Moses. My death is the event toward which all of history has been moving. This is really important. So let's begin looking at the, the meaning of the Last Supper. Jesus is sharing this information, not at just some sort of a random time. He's sharing this information intentionally on Passover. You see, Israel, when the Passover came, they were in severe bondage to this tyrant Pharaoh. 
tyrannical enough that, that Pharaoh was killing off their firstborn sons, trying to control the population so Israel would not become strong enough to rebel against Egypt. He was a big enough tyrant that they were doing forced labor and under harsh circumstances. It was a very brutal life. And the message of Passover is that God does indeed hate tyranny. He does indeed hate injustice. But when we look at the record of the events of that first Passover, the narrative makes it clear that it's not just the Egyptians who are worthy of the judgment that's about to come. The narrative also makes clear that the Israelites were also sinful and worthy of that same judgment. And God decides, for whatever reason, in a moment in time, to actually make his judgment active. And we see it recorded in Exodus 11 through 13. You can read the whole story if you want later. God is basically saying, as part of my judgment for your people's sins, all of your firstborn sons will die because of the evil that you've done. And he's making a point here. The text makes a point here. The Bible is not divided. The world is not divided between those who are good and those who are bad. The world is divided between those who are sinful and those who are really sinful and really evil. It's just like G.K. Chesterton said last week when we quoted him, what's wrong with the world? His answer was, I am. In the first Passover, God is saying to Moses, the only way to escape this judgment is for you to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood, and put it on the doorposts, and for your whole family to go indoors and take shelter under the blood of the lamb until this passes. In other words, you must have faith in a substitute. God is saying, if I come with true justice, it doesn't matter how well you've done, what you've done, no one will be able to survive. Only if you've taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb will you be saved. It doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter your good deeds. It doesn't matter your performance. It doesn't matter your generosity. In that night of Passover, the original Passover, in every home, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. And that's what's called, in theological terms, substitutionary sacrifice. And we sometimes struggle with the whole blood thing. And we think that's kind of gory. But the reality is that all of us know that substitutionary sacrifice is the very essence of love. Now, you may not know it by those words, but you know it. Let me try to illustrate that, what that means. How many of you have had relationships that work really well, that you're really loving to each other, uh, as long as it's always comfortable? Right? None, right? When we love someone who's emotionally wounded, when we love someone lacking in strength, when we love someone who has a corrupted, demeaning, twisted view of themselves or other people around them, we find ourselves, if we're going to love them, being substitutionary sacrifices. We take on some of their pain. We take on some of their pain, uh, some of their sin, their suffering. We intercede for them. We go to bat for them. We try to cover for them. We try to make up for their weaknesses. We bear in ourselves their weaknesses with them or sometimes even for them. All true love 
involves substitutionary sacrifice. We see it all over in the movies. Think about it. Frodo, Lord of the Rings. He's taken on all the pain and the suffering for other people to bring deliverance to them. It's love, right? We see it in uh, my daughter's reading Tale of Two Cities for her English class right now. A man gives his life for another. We see it in other movies. Uh, almost every movie has this theme. There's this helpless person there being pursued by evil, and then the hero comes in, and they take on all the scars, the pain, the bullet wounds, whatever, and they save them, right? And we see it even in going to the point of death in, in movies like Saving Private Ryan. Substitutionary sacrifice is the essence of all love. It's even true in our social relationships. How many of you remember middle school and high school? How many of you don't ever want to remember middle school and high school? Right? Okay, sorry, I'm going to take you back there for a minute. So I'm going to assume you were all the cool kids, right? And you as all the cool kids in in middle school and high school, you were walking through the halls one day and you saw this kid over here who was just totally rejected and uncool and despondent and sad, and your heart went out for him. You felt bad for him. And they always sat alone, so you decided once in a while to go sit with them at lunch. You decided to go care for them and try to befriend them to, to cheer them up, right? What happened if you did that? All your cool friends start to question you, right? What's up with you hanging with them? They tease you. They may look differently at you. They may even reject you. Because you see, you discovered in making that action that you could not deliver them from some of their uncoolness without taking some of that uncoolness on yourself. Right? We see it in every aspect of life. If you love another, you take on pain. You take on risk. You take on danger. The cost of their flaws will cost you. The cost of other people who treat them wrongly because of the other people's flaws, they will cost you as well. Substitutionary sacrifice is the essence of love. And God did for all of us what we're also called to do on a day-by-day basis with the people in our lives if we want Christ's love to change us and others. Jesus says, I am the Lamb. It is my blood being shed becoming the turning point of history. Isaiah, 700 years, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus prophesied about this very thing with Jesus. He said, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And if you look at the rest of the context of that chapter in Isaiah 58, it says He was led like a lamb to the slaughter to forgive us, to deliver us from bondage, to deliver us from injustice and sin, and to give us life. And yet the teaching of the Old Testament is very clear. The sacrifice of lambs had to be done regularly. You couldn't do it once. It wasn't perfect and enduring. But Paul, in talking about Jesus' death in Romans 6.10, says this, the death He died, He died to sin once for all. And the writer in Hebrews, talking about Jesus taking the suffering of humanity in His death, says this, and once made perfect, meaning completing the death, He became the source of eternal salvation for all those who would obey Him. Jesus is not just a substitutionary sacrifice for us. He is the perfect substitutionary sacrifice. None other is needed. No other can be perfect. 
But substitutionary sacrifice isn't the end of the meaning of this, of this experience. Jesus is saying to them as well that I am making a new covenant with you and with all of humanity, a new binding agreement. Now, some of you will remember uh, we talked about covenants not too long ago in a message, and then Wendy also had one on that that she talked about, which if you haven't heard that message by Wendy, it, 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 it's life-transforming for me. So go back and listen to it. Most of the time, covenants were made between a stronger party and a weaker party. And most of the time, the weaker party had to ratify the covenant through a sacrifice. We see this example in, in uh, what is it, Exodus, uh, where's my notes here? I forget, Exodus 24. Uh, God is making a, a covenant with the people of Israel, and Moses sacrifices lambs, and he sprinkles the people with blood. We see elsewhere, not just in the reference that Wendy made, but elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament, sometimes those sacrifices were cutting the animals into, arranging them in rows, and you as the usually the inferior party walking through that. Once in a while, the superior party would also walk through. And the message of both of those sacrifices is simply this. If I do not keep my oath, If I don't keep my part of the bargain, may my blood be spilled or may I be cut up and laid on the ground like this, saying I deserve a curse if I do not follow through with my part of the bargain. In Genesis 15, when Wendy talked, we we saw that as God made the Abrahamic covenant, that God actually refused to allow Abraham to even walk through the covenant. God walked through the pieces of the animals. And when he walked through the pieces of the animals, what he was saying to all of us is, if I don't keep my part of the bargain, then this is what will be done to me. I will be cut to pieces. I will be shamed. I will be humiliated. I will be killed. And if you don't keep your part of the bargain, I will walk through it for you as well. Because he didn't let us walk through And what we see today in this communion and in Jesus' death is Jesus actually paying our price from that Abrahamic covenant and at the same time establishing a new covenant where he again does not let us walk through it. He says, I'm going to do this for you. In fact, he says, I will not eat and drink again until it's fulfilled. He's making this, this oath, this unconditional oath that he's going to accomplish it for us. And not allow us to be part of it. And notice when he makes this oath. And notice when he's giving the disciples communion. He's not giving them the first communion in the context of them repenting of sin and asking for forgiveness. In fact, as we look at the text, he's giving it to them. And then moments later, he's saying, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to be betray, going to be betray me. And some would actually look at this text and say, well... That's an argument for, in theological terms, what's called universal salvation, meaning everybody's saved regardless of what they do. And that's actually, you can't make that argument from this text because you ignore the entire context of what Jesus is saying if you do that. That's not what Jesus is saying. It nullifies the context of the Passover. Jesus is saying to you through this text today, like he said to his disciples then, even though you say you can follow me and be good enough, you can't. And I know it. I know you're going to continue to fail, even after you choose to follow me. I know you're going to be tempted to bravado like Peter was just moments later saying, I will follow you. I won't let you down. I'm going to pump myself. I'm, up, I'm going to perform even till death. I know you're going to betray me even though you try to 
go to false bravado. And yet Jesus is saying to us, I am offering forgiveness and life more free, more abundant to all who take shelter under the blood of the Lamb, which is me. Only through me, Jesus is saying, the one truly spotless Lamb, can you find the life, the freedom, the deliverance you want. You know, too many of us grew up in traditions where communion was like a magic bullet. We just took it, we rang the bell, and we said, we're okay for another week until we went back and took it again. But the result of that is that we live this life that's kind of fearful. We're always wondering, are we up to date? Have we got a clean slate? Have we done everything right? And when do we got to get back so that we can make it all right again? We just live life through this fearful grid. And Jesus is giving us a picture here of much greater security than that. He's giving us a picture where there's no need for fear, no need for worry, no need for anxiety. Because he's saying, when you choose to live under my blood, when you choose to give your life to me, when you choose to follow under my authority, my forgiveness covers both the past, the present, and the future. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? Now, uh, biblically, I don't have time to explain all this, but that doesn't nullify our need to still live a, a life with repentance and confession involved in it so that we can respond to God's authority and, and learn, to be, learn to be healthy, learn to be increasingly free. But the surety of His love, the surety of His forgiveness is so great that we have to work really hard to absolutely reject Him to get out from under that surety of His forgiveness and His blessing in our lives because it's not the quality of our faith that saves us but it's the object of your faith do you get that it's not the quality of your faith it's the object let me use a famous metaphor used by preachers all the time to to illustrate this imagine you walk up and you're standing at the edge of a just this just the sheer cliff you're looking thousands of feet down to the the valley floor and it's just straight down pretty much but about Oh, 10, 20 feet below you, there's this, there's this shoot of a tree sticking out. And it's really vibrant. And you're looking at it going, man, it looks like it's really pretty healthy. And how could it be there? And then you fall. And you're caught by that tree. Now, close your eyes, visualize it, hyperventilate for a minute. It catches you. And here's the question. Are you only saved if you have really great faith by that tree? Or are you saved because of the strength of the tree? Is it the quality of your faith in that tree that saves you? Or is it the strength of the tree itself that saves you? And Jesus is saying to you, and, and, and your salvation doesn't depend on your commitment to me but my perfect commitment to you. Your salvation doesn't depend on your strength, but on my strength. See, the good news is that in Jesus, you depend on Him, not on yourself. He saves you because you can't. He ensures your future because you can't. And He knows that. And He makes this unconditional commitment to be the loving substitutionary sacrifice for you if you will only receive it. Huge meaning. But there's more. There's more.
Jesus serves communion in the context of community, in a group of close-knit friends. And you see, this doesn't really stand out to us unless we really understand the Passover. The Passover was, the Passover message on the original Passover was, you and all your family do this sacrifice together, you prepare the food, you put the blood on the doorpost, and you take shelter together in your home as a family. And so throughout all of the centuries of celebrating the Passover, this was always celebrated as a family affair. But Jesus actually here is saying to his disciples, I I want you to celebrate it with me, not with your family. I want you to celebrate it with your fellow disciples, not with your family. And the meaning of that is when you come under, Jesus is saying this, when you come under my tent, when you come under my blood on your doorpost, when you become my follower, you have something in common with those others who are also followers that is as strong a bond as family. And we need to learn to have those depth of relationships and honesty of relationships among us. And we see this in the early church. That's the way they celebrated communion. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, we see Paul disciplining the Corinthian church because they were violating those ideas of being that open, that generous, that accepting as a family would be in the way they were practicing communion. The the final meaning to communion is about that which compels us as followers of Christ to let the defining purpose of our life be Christ's mission. Both Jesus and Paul use this word, remember. Remember through communion. What does it mean to remember? Is it just the static concept? Is it just this belief? Is it just this nostalgia about the past? Or is it something more than that? The easiest way I can illustrate this is how I remember Ted Platter. Uh, he was a four-year accountability partner throughout college, my closest friend, roommate, died th- 30 days after we graduated in an accident. And when I remember Ted, some of the first things that come to mind are the fun things. I remember uh, we were playing uh, intramural football at college, and it was down to five seconds left. The other team had scored, and we were behind by three points, and we knew because the other team had some really fast guys, there was no way we were going to run the kickoff back for a touchdown. And so he just decided to have fun and just provoke laughter. So he decided we're going to use backyard football rules and we're going to consider this to be a pass anytime option. So on the kickoff, he gets it, stands there. Another guy runs down, he throws a bomb. And as our guy catches it and running in the end zone, the whole team of ours is trying to convince the other team that this is really backyard rules and this is completely legal. And the other team's just going ballistic with the ref, going, no, 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 this can't be, this can't be. And we were just doing it to have a laugh. And I learned from Ted, and I still remember Ted, for having fun even in the crunch times of life. Being able to laugh and laugh at yourself and just have a great time, even when the pressure of life is on. I remember walking into his room one day. He was a head RA at the time, and it had been a particularly rough couple weeks because there had been lots of discipline problems and lots of personal problems going on. In fact, one of the things he was actually, when I walked into the room, he was just crying. He was broken down there and, uh, and crying out to God when I walked into the room. And, and what had been going on was some of the really guys who were trying to just be rebellious for rebelliousness' sake were making fun of some people, and Ted knew confidentially on the other side that the people they were making fun of were uh, considering suicide. And a couple of them had tried already that year. 
And it was breaking his heart. He was so angry and so torn up at the same time. And yet the fact of coming in and watching how he was handling it and watching him allow me into his life to pray with him and care for him in that moment has taught me an everlasting lesson about turning to God with that kind of pain quicker and not trying to escape through other things and turning to other friends quicker and not trying to escape through other things. It's made a difference in my life to this day. I remember another time we walked into our room and said, Ross, uh, God did a miracle today. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I was walking, I was walking back from my class to the dorm and I just, I just had this really strong impression that I was supposed to go. I don't remember exactly what floor it was, but it was like the third floor, fourth floor. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It was, it was one of the floors of the dorm he was supposed to go. And he said, I just had a strong impression. I felt like maybe it was the Holy Spirit. And he said, so I went there and I got on the elevator and the minute I got off, the floor was in a panic. And come to find out there was a guy who was locked in his room that they thought was trying to commit suicide. And Ted didn't have his master key with him. The RA wasn't on the floor, so he didn't have a master key. The door was locked. They tried kicking it in. It was a metal frame door with a metal door, and they couldn't kick it in. And, and they prayed and tried the door again, and it opened. And they cut the guy down and saved his life. And he said, I don't know. God just led me, and I just had this confidence that he wanted to save him and that the door was going to open. And f- since that time, that story and that moment, those moments with him have given me this sense of I need to be more aware of the Holy Spirit's promptings and I, need to be, I, I can be confident. I can be confident in, cr- in conflict and crisis. I remember another time with him playing basketball. It was intramural season. And uh, I blew my right ankle out for the sixth time and it was really bad. I came down off of a rebound on half on a guy's foot and just totally blew it out. I was, I was convinced that I'd just shattered the tendons. It was, I was sitting there on the floor writhing in pain. And uh, Ted grabbed all the guys immediately, just grabbed my foot, grabbed my ankle, started to pray. And within 10 seconds, the pain was gone and I walked off the court. And I started to think, you know what? Even if it doesn't always happen... I need to be more aggressive in praying for healing because when it does happen, it's pretty cool. In fact, by the way, we had somebody who heard that in the first service and came for prayer and said they couldn't lift their arm and their shoulder was pain all the way down and it was pretty, nerves were dead and when they tried to lift it, it was painful and they got prayer and walked out lifting it up. So we'll just, you know, whether it's going to be, I'll just say the facts of it and leave it at that and we'll let see if it needs more prayer in the future. But it, just to pray... And believe that. I remember Ted over the summer calling me. And then coming back, we talked about it uh, uh, at the beginning of our senior year. He went home and he's a 20, 21-year-old punk kid at home. And that summer, God used him tremendously to coach and mentor his pastor who was twice his age. And I remember that and thinking, wow. And the, the history of that story has allowed me and shaped something in me that allowed me to be respectful and yet of older, older people and yet confident when God asked me to lead. And it was a huge lesson that helped me lead when at 35 I became leadership development head for 100 churches on the West Coast and I was 97% of the guys were older than me. And you just learn. So remember, isn't just nostalgia. It's not just an idea. Remember is modeling your life, allowing the life of another to impact the way you live. 
So we have to ask the question, what did Jesus do in going to the cross in his death for you and for all of humanity? And communion is about inviting us to live and follow in that example, to pursue and be committed as Jesus was in relationship where there's pain. Expecting God's grace and God's presence to bring salvation and healing. 1 Corinthians 11 says it explicitly, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Remembrance leads to action, leads to telling the stories, leads to impacting other people's life. Paul reaffirms that the power of Jesus' death is still present to shape human history to shape your history, to shape the history of your family and your friends and your community and your colleagues. And Paul says the power of his death will continue to make historic impact through us until the Lord returns. Which means that every time we take communion, Jesus is saying to each and every one of us through the Holy Spirit, you can be sure I will get you there. It's not up to me It's not up to you, it's up to me. I'll get you there. And when it comes to your purpose, when it comes to influencing your family and your kids and your colleagues and bringing people to faith or your profession and having success that you feel like God's declared over that in your life, He's saying the mission I have declared for your life, it's not up to you. It's up to me. I will get you there. If you remember to live under the power of my death, letting my blood, my life, cover the doorposts of your life. So finally, how does communion transform our lives? You know, you can have you can have a wonderful feast set before you and you can still starve unless you eat it, unless you savor it, unless you take it in, unless you delight in it, unless you make it part of you in order that it can transform you. The Lord's Supper communion is the, I think, one of the most powerful, visual, tactile, experiential reminders that the Christian faith that Jesus gives us that reminds us of the essence of the love and the power of God. Don't just take it as a magical pill. Remember, let the true picture of God's love just sink in. Let the realization of how secure you are, how forgiven you are in that love, sink in deeply and transform you. Let your life's story proclaim the beauty and the power of Christ's death so that others can also experience that same thing. And most of all, most of all, with a worshipful, expectant heart, don't treat it as a ritual. Treat it as a relationship. Expect the power of the Holy Spirit to meet you, to be real to you, for God to come to you in that moment, to make you understand through whatever circumstances, whether it's being prayed for and being healing, healed, or whether it's a warm feeling that comes over and takes all the anxiety and the concern out, or whatever it is, let your experience of God be real so that the beliefs that you savor becomes something to transform your life. If the worship team would like to come now, or please come, even if you don't want to come. I want to prepare to receive communion. And I want to set it up this way by just uh, asking you to listen for a moment um, through the words of a text and some just prompts that I'm going to say. 
to where God is speaking to you, where he wants to work in your life. And we're going to use the most often quoted communion scripture in, in the church, 1 Corinthians 11. And just listen and ponder how God might want to speak to you. For I received, it says, from the Lord, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he gave us this on the night he was betrayed. Where have you felt that you have betrayed your faith? Where have you felt that you have fallen short? Jesus pursues you even in that moment. He's pursuing you right now. Allow his spirit to make himself known to you. It goes on to say, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in, res- in remembrance of me. Can you see Jesus pursuing you with a thankfulness to be pursuing you, even in the muck and the mess that you're in right now? Jesus lived thankful for the opportunity to sacrificially love you and others. And he gave all to the point of breaking to show that love to broken, hurting, helpless, rebellious people just like you and I. Scripture goes on in the same way. After supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. He gave his very life for you. He didn't ask you to do anything. He paid the perfect price for your sin. You need no longer have worry. You need no longer have anxiety about the past, about the present, or the future if you live your life as a follower of Jesus. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, he goes on to say, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So those of you that were at the uh, annual meeting last week, you already heard this. And, uh, but I'm going to share it again so you can hear it again. A few weeks back, um, just having one of those weird sleepless nights. Do you ever have those sleepless nights where just, you know, you're just, you're wrestling with stuff. And I, I was at the point of wrestling, wrestling with some stuff because I just, I just see so much. There's so much amazing stuff happening, but I see so much more that we could do. And I just have so much vision and, and for where we could be as a church and how healthy and the things that we could do and the needs we could meet. And, and I, you know, I had like four Sundays where I didn't preach and I was trying to work on that. And at the end of that, I was just kind of in this space where I was going, oh, God, there's just not enough time, not enough energy. You know, just praying for more time. You know, that, and that's just me. That's just me. I, I tend to be just wanting more faster than God usually brings at a lot of times. And I was praying on the night... And, and then God gave me a dream. So for those of you who struggle with dreams in the Bible, uh, because it's not really been talked about a lot in church, just go back and reread the Bible. Probably over half the things written in the Bible are based on dreams that God gave. That's how he speaks real commonly. And the New Testament says he wants all of us, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, to dream dreams and see visions, and the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us that way. So the Lord gave me this dream. And in this dream, there was this little builder's hut. And the reason I know it was a builder's hut is because it was a picture of this little iPad game that my son and I play that it was a builder's hut. That's just what it is, right? And then out of the builder's hut came this call-out cloud, kind of like you see in the comic strips where words are written. And I saw in the dream written the words, uh, tiny movement, loud 
blood. I just kind of said, God, what do you mean? And he said to me, even if all you feel like you can do is tiny movement, maybe it is tiny movement, maybe it isn't, but even if all you feel like you can do is tiny movement, my blood, my life, my impact on other people is going to speak loudly. And the clear invitation of that to me was a picture for who we are and what God wants to do through us as Quest this year. Even if we can't make all the moves forward that we want to make because we don't have the time and the energy, if we'll just tell the story of His life, of His blood, of His forgiveness, of His love for us, God will speak loudly and have huge impact through us, even if all we can do is tiny movement. Because it's really the power of the blood. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember that the power of God's blood, His forgiveness, His life given to you that lives in you, speaks loudly. Proclaim it persistently. Tell others about the stories of how God's come to you, whether it's your conversion story or whether it's an answered prayer or whether it's sometime you prayed and God touched somebody else. Or I don't care. Just tell the stories of God's life coming to you because His death, that which we remember in communion, speaks loudly and brings historic change. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us that You would make Yourself, by Your Spirit, so real to us. Now, as we take communion, but as we walk through the days, that You would become so much more real to us. That we wouldn't practice our faith through rituals, but it would be relationship in all we do. So Lord, we invite Your Holy Spirit to rule and reign in our lives. Lord, we ask for ourselves, that your blood would speak loudly in our lives, that that would go so deep that we would trust you so wonderfully, so freeingly, and find such great joy. And we ask, Lord, that your blood would speak loudly, your life, your forgiveness would speak loudly to us, that our families can be transformed, our neighbors, our community can be radically transformed, historically transformed, because that's what you do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you come when you're ready and just receive communion as we continue to worship? We serve an awesome God. So I got this at the end of the first service, and I believe it is a a word for us from God. Uh, You can accept it and test it as you see fit. Uh, Mary gave this to me, and she said she felt like God gave her a picture of a long time ago when a friend gave her a jigsaw puzzle of the Last Supper, and this is what she says about that. As friends with faith, God is challenging us today to live in such a way as a community of faith so that the people around us would see more clearly the love of God. God is calling us to cooperate with Him, allowing Him to put the pieces of the puzzle together to be the picture He is calling us to be as He re-members remembers or puts together his body of Christ at Quest. This is a year that God is putting a lot together. This is a year God is inviting us to make a tremendous difference. I think a historic difference because the power of God is here with you, with us. Will you be that? Will you remember that? 
Will you proclaim his death and allow him to make historic change through you this year in your life and in the lives of all the people around you? That's the invitation today. If you came today and you have a prayer need, we would love to pray for you. Join us. uh, Some of the people who are ready to pray for you in the back or grab a friend. God bless. Have a great week. for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.